I want to thank you for being here this morning. I, um, I, I had a hope. I had a desire for MLK weekend. And my desire was to get my friend, lawyer Fred Gray, to come to Houston, Texas and speak at our church. I have known Fred through Dr. Randy Lowry, who I'm honored to have uh, uh, as an of counsel lawyer at our firm. He served 16 years or so as the president of my alma mater, Lipscomb University. And Lipscomb University, when I went to school there, and I graduated in 1981, had recently been integrated. But as a Christian university, it had not historically been integrated. And even when I was there, if you were black-skinned, you could go to school there, but it was not a coincidence that in the dormitory, you lived in the basement. I grew up in a home where my mother had been the human relations director for the city of Lubbock before she opened the first food bank. And what my mom's job was, was to try to find reconciliation and unity among the three major groups in Lubbock. And that would have been the Latino group, the group with black skin, and the group with white skin. And there was integration in Lubbock at that point, but it was still as restrictively, carefully done as possible. So there were two middle schools that everybody knew of as being the black middle schools. The other middle schools were mixed, white and Latino, by and large. But I grew up in a home where we were taught the Christian principle that regardless of what color your skin is, you as a human being are made in the image of God. You can be an albino. You can be someone who is white. You can be someone who's brown. You can be someone who's darker than brown. Dark brown. It doesn't matter. You still got a heart. You still got a brain. You still got bones. You still got a liver or a spleen. Some of you still have an appendix. You still got uh, a stomach. I, we're people made in the image of God. So I grew up with that, but I also grew up aware of the fact that not all of the world sees it that way. And I grew up with an understanding part of our Christian mission is to teach everybody that we are all created equally in the image of God and God loves us all. And if we truly believe what the Bible teaches there, then we will treat each other equally and we will treat each other with love. As Pastor Jarrett just profoundly preached in the last service. So here's what I wanted. I wanted Fred Gray to come to class today. 
I wanted him to come to church. Jarrett and I schemed this. Pastor Jarrett and I schemed this six months ago. And we started lobbying Randy Lowry because we know the key to Fred Gray is Randy Lowry. And and Fred's going to quit hanging around me because I just bother him all the time. We took Fred to Lubbock, Texas last November because we found out that he did not yet have a degree from Texas Tech University. And that didn't seem right. So they gave him an honorary law degree. They put a chair in his name at the law school for civil rights. And the mayor gave him the keys to the city. I asked him, have you ever gotten keys to the city before? And he said, to a city before, he says, well, yes. I said, well, I'll bet they weren't as big as those. He said, actually, they were bigger. So, Lubbock has now adopted humility, but I have asked him to come up here. You know, he's been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He's just an outstanding Christian man who has preached since he was 12 years old. He's 93, do that math. And I have asked Pastor Jarrett if he would uh, uh, join me in interviewing Fred Gray for this class. So would you join us, please, in welcoming Pastor Jared, of course, and Fred Gray to the stand, or to the platform. All right, my friend. Same song, second verse. Right here. And Fred, we're going to put you front and center, if you don't mind. I should call him Mr. Gray out of respect, and I do respect him, but sometimes I call him Fred because he's just become a very good friend. That's all right. And uh, uh, please understand, no disrespect intended. When I announced that you were coming, everybody sent me an email about the AARP. We're getting some feedback from this speaker right here, really sharp. Um, the AARP bulletin, and I don't get this, my wife does, but I don't, <laughs> look at this, right there, Fred Gray, the man, the myth, the legend, if you get the Montgomery, Alabama newspaper, the Montgomery Advertiser, Wednesday, January 10th, this front page talking about the city honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King, Montgomery plans days of celebration. Got a picture there of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Welcomed with a kiss by his wife, Coretta Scott King, after leaving court in Montgomery. And a file photo they had from March 22nd, 1956. And you can see Reverend King. You can see Coretta Scott King. But look who that happy lawyer is back there grinning. (laughs) 
I think these folks, a lot of these folks, probably over half of them heard. Thank you. But I want to start where Pastor Jared asked you this morning. I want us to hear one more time what your mother taught you growing up. My mother taught all five of us, and I was the youngest of five children, that we could be anything we wanted to be if we did three things. One, keep Christ first in your life. Two, get a good education. And three, stay out of trouble. Don't get involved in the criminal justice system because you don't always get justice. I've tried to do all three for my four children. One is here with us. Another one practices law with me. Another one is the managing director of the Tuskegee Human Civil Rights Multicultural Center. And the fourth one is the paralegal in our law office. I've had the honor of being in your law office before. Yes. A couple of occasions. And in your law office, the first time I ever went there, I had to figure out how to get there. I'd I'd flown into, they've got a, a little airport there in Tuskegee. And I'd flown in. And there's a square in the center of town. And that square has got four streets around it. And this street is Martin Luther King Street. This street is Rosa Parks Street. And they are connected by Fred Gray Street. (laughs) You were the connection. You you were something those two had in common. They were your clients. That's right. Pastor Jarrett read your book, Bus Ride to Justice. He called me. He said, you really think he'll come? I said, yes, he's a man of his word. Jarrett, what were your impressions and, and where do we take this conversation? Yeah, I, I've told people as I've read. Uh, Mr. Gray's book, I just got lost in it this last few months as I've been preparing for him to come and just meeting him. I still can't believe I'm in his presence. I I don't mean that lightly. I mean, we give honor to whom honor is due, and God has certainly used you. You know what? One thing I was struck by in your book was God's provision in your life. And that story of you going to law school and not knowing how it was going to be paid for, I think our people... When God calls you to do something, he always provides the means to do it. And that story, I think they would love to hear how God just came through in a miraculous way, really. Well, uh, and I got admitted to Case Weston. And I had not applied to the University of Alabama because I knew they wouldn't admit me. But the state of Alabama and all of the other southern states at that time, in order to avoid African Americans attending the state university in the southern states, they provided what they call out-of-state aid, where if an African American wanted to go to 
graduate school or professional school in order to, for them not to go to the University of Alabama, there was a case, U.S. versus Gaines, I believe it was, back in 1939, that held ill. They provided assistance for them out of state that would satisfy the constitutional requirements of education. The only thing about it, they only paid a portion of your tuition, room, and board. They had some way that they worked it out, and they paid for your transportation there and back. But it was on a reimbursement basis. So as I applied to go to law school, I had to try to find a place where I could go to law school, also get a part-time job, and still be able to do all of my work, realizing I'd be in a new environment and I had never been in an integrated school with students in it from all of your major universities across the country. And in checking, I found that Cleveland had a motto at that time, the best location in the nation. And if you wanted to find a job in Cleveland, whether it was a full-time job or a part-time job, you could find it. So that was encouraging to me. Secondly, the courses at what was then Western Reserve University, now Case Western Reserve, now Case Western Reserve University, all of the classes they started at eight in the morning, and they were all over by twelve thirty in the afternoon. So that gave me an opportunity in time. I felt. If I could get a part-time job for three or four hours in the afternoon, I would still have time in the evenings to prepare a class for the next day. And I also was planning to go back to Alabama. So I, on every course that I took, I had to find out what Alabama law was on that particular issue. So those were some of the challenges that I had and that I had to consider as I decided where to go to law school. And I think all those decisions were properly fine. On the other part or the financial part of it, I did go. I found a job. The first job I had was in a factory that manufactured buttons. So we worked on that. But at the end of the year, at the, at the end of the first quarter, when we had been given our examinations and 
I'd taken the exam. I was very anxious to know what would be the result of it. They would give you a number, and you go, and they'd post it. You look at your number, and then you see your grade. But the secretary called me in before they posted the grades after we had taken the exam and said, Fred, I'm sorry, but we can't post your grades because you haven't paid all your tuition. That was downheartening. I went home up to the dorm because I was living at Hudson House, which was one of the dormitory facilities they had. And uh, I had a letter. The letter was from the home office of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity, which was my undergraduate fraternity. They had a $250 scholarship that they awarded. I had applied for it months before. Didn't get any information that I'd been granted it. But on that day, there was a check for $250, which was more than enough to pay the balance of my tuition. And he got his grades. He was in the top 15% of his class. Yes. And this just speaks to his integrity. He continued to write checks to his fraternity to bless others who blessed him. Yes, that's correct. Powerful. And still do. That's beautiful. Um, I'm amazed at that story law school generally you only get one test for each class and that one final exam is your entire grade so until you go see what your number is that they put in the window and you start see you don't have any idea did you pass and if so did everybody else do better than you or where did you rank and you're there at your first integrated school with people from all over and you killed it. <laughs> yeah. I, I was proud of myself and was glad because I, I really wanted to, I'd done pretty good at Alabama State, but to be in competition with these persons who've been at all of your major universities and had all of the facilities and all of the resources, and here I am from the ghettos of Alabama, I felt good. And just amazing that not only was he studying for classes and carrying the workload that you heard that he was carrying to make ends meet, but on top of studying for his classes and working, he was reading everything about Alabama state law that he could find in addition to what he was already doing because he knew he was coming back to Montgomery to do everything he could to destroy segregation where he found it. Right. That's amazing. Uh, amazing. It, it really is. And you, you, I, I, I just want to punctuate this. Most law schools will not allow you to work your first year. They will not allow it because the odds of you being able to work and pass are statistically Long shots. And yet you did it both. All right. So a lot of people have heard some of of this discussion. And I started out my conversation with uh, my experiences growing up and then at Lipscomb. 
Lipscomb brings Randy Lowry in to be president, and he decides that the school needs to be different than it's been before. And he contacted you because what you did not tell people earlier is the school you went to for preaching was where the black kids could go to learn to preach because they weren't going to be allowed in in Lipscomb. When you got contacted by Randy Lowry, tell us how he brought Lipscomb full circle and that gets you here. Well, of course, I received the first knowledge about the possibility of receiving an honorary degree. It didn't come from Dr. Lowry, but it came from the preacher uh, at Simpson Street in Atlanta, Georgia, and to Harriston. And he says, Fred, uh, this is going to want to give you an honorary degree and want to know if you would accept it. I said, yes, I'd be happy to accept it. <laughs> and I did. Uh, it wasn't the first honorary degree, you know. The first honorary degree I received, you wouldn't believe it, was at the University of Massachusetts in Amahan. And it came about through some other persons who had some connections up there. And that was a long time ago. But I did immediately accept that, accept it. And I was invited up. And uh, it was not at a usual graduation when you give honorary degrees along with others. But it was a special dinner. And I don't know, they had 500 or, or more, or between 500 and 1,000 people who were there. And I found out later, and they had the city officials and state officials and federal officials. But I, I found out that the location of the building where the award the degree was being conferred, occupied a part of some land that one of the professors at Lipscomb, uh, and it was Brother, I forget his name, I'll, I'll think of it in a minute, but it's in Bus Ride to Justice. But I, when I was a student at Lipscomb, I ended up working for him, and Lipscomb later bought that property, and I was just happy that I, they would use some of the black boys over there to work for, for um, at Lipscomb. Um, I, we give you honor. I hold you up in high regard for what you've done as a lawyer, um, as a man who has sought equality for the races, uh, please understand the kind of law he chose to practice does not pay diddly squat. Hmm. He didn't do this for big dollars. He wasn't a big dollar lawyer. He did this out of a burning sense of calling by God in social justice. 
And we pay you honor, but we've got a lot of people in this audience today who are black, who are white, who are Hispanic, who in their own lives have done some incredible things. And I just want to take a moment. Sitting down here almost every Sunday is Miss Carolyn and Dr. Hank. And anybody who knows Miss Carolyn and Dr. Hank immediately wonders how on earth he married her. Because she is so much better looking than he is. But I got some pictures of Dr. Hank when he was a young man. Dr. Hank recently got an honorary doctorate as well for doing in the Air Force what you did in Montgomery. Working hard to, to change the segregation. He's a young man. He's eight years younger than you. So, uh, you know, he's, he's not an old fella. But when did you realize that God was doing something tremendous through you? Well, I never really thought about, and I know God was in the plan, but I didn't think about it in terms of what uh, what it meant to me. I thought about what I wanted to do was to help people who had some problems. So I was concerned about doing whatever I could do to help black people in my community to solve the problems that we were having. And that was the motivating factor behind it. But if I could go back to one other thing on Dr. Lyra, in addition to the honorary doctor's degree, that was just the beginning of it. He decided that he wanted Lipscomb to enter into a memorandum of agreement between Fred Gray and Lipscomb University in order to bring about and better harmony between the races and the hard feelings that had existed between Lipscomb University and the National Christian Institute, which I had attended and couldn't go over there. And when they took the assets that was at NCI and gave them to Lipscomb, and those of us who were graduates of NCI thought that Lipscomb was doing us harm. And guess what we did? You sued him. Filed a lawsuit against him. <laughs> you took my alma mater to the Supreme Court. No, didn't take him to the Supreme Court. You would have. <laughs> uh, we took him to the Court of Appeals. We recognized that it was going to be very, very difficult to win a case of that sort in Nashville, which was the synagogue for churches of Christ across the nation. And we recognized that, that, that it was going to be a hard fight. But I also recognized that to live with ourselves, we had to do it. 
So years later, he decided in this memorandum of understanding there'd be several things in it, one of which was to change the name of uh, the uh, one area of the university from uh, the uh, section of law, justice, and society, Lipscomb uh, Law, Justice, and Society, and name it Fred Gray. That was just one thing. But that was another thing. Another thing was they were going to help me preserve my papers up to that point. And that was another point. And then another thing, for the next five years, they agreed, and they and this was all volunteer. I didn't ask them to do it. This all came from them, and they contributed for the next five years $50,000 a year to the Tuskegee Human and Civil Rights Multicultural Center. Beautiful. Well, um, and not only that, included in it also <laughs> was a scholarship fund to encourage individuals to enroll in the Institute of Law, Justice, and Society. So we want to thank you, Dr. Lyra, and thank you very much, Mark. Oh, no, it, it, it's him. Jared, you mentioned uh, just a moment ago, even in this court case, that you knew uh, that it was probably going to be defeated. And it seems like even throughout your book, and again, I can't, encourage highly enough to get your hands on bus ride to justice and read this story very gripping story of his life but it seems like every case you took to court you knew you were going to lose uh my question is how did you stay encouraged how did you stay on mission when you knew that your back was up against the wall and that the chances of you winning per se wasn't going to be great well i knew it was a hard battle when I got into it. So I didn't expect it to be easy. Uh, but I think I mentioned this. I may have mentioned into the other things. Uh, most of these cases, believe it or not, were filed in federal court. And most of them won. I won. But I didn't win them all. Many of them, or several of them, that Judge Johnson ruled against me, and he ruled against me in the couple, I got reversed. For example, he ruled against us in Gomillion v. Lightfoot. The Supreme Court reversed him. But that was another case we haven't even talked about that I think I should have won, but I never won it. Yeah. If you want to know about it, I'll tell you about it. I'd like to hear about it. <laughs> Okay. I got three of those that I never <laughs> won that I thought I should have. I want to hear yours. Okay. In Montgomery, early on during the bus boycott, there was only one state-supported uh, college, and that was Alabama State College for Negroes. Auburn University was some 60 miles northeast. The University of Alabama was in northwest Alabama, over 200 miles. At that time, I'm not sure they had a University of South Alabama down in Mobile, but they had 
Florence State up in northwest Alabama, in Alabama State there. But the white people in Montgomery wanted a state college or university in Montgomery. Instead of taking Alabama State and making what it wanted to make, uh, and University of Alabama had a little branch on Bell Street near Maxwell Air Force Base at the time, but they wanted a university in Montgomery. So the legislature passed legislation creating a commission to establish the University of Auburn in Montgomery. And I thought that was wrong. We filed a lawsuit. And uh, of course, we had Supreme Court decisions about all of the schools now up to that point, including uh, Brown versus Board of Education. But uh, Judge Johnson ruled against us. We appealed that case to the Fifth Circuit that ruled against us. But I was encouraged. But then we appealed it to the Supreme Court and lost it. So the greatest loss I had was that, and I think in Bluff Ride to Justice there should be a section on the university that never should have been built, if you look on the index of it. Some people told me some years now, now what happened since then? Alabama State became a university. It's in Montgomery. Auburn University has in Montgomery a university. The in Troy State that was just a community college, decided they wanted a presence in Montgomery. So you now have in Montgomery, Alabama, probably the only place where you have three state-supported universities, mm -hmm. Alabama State University, Auburn University in Montgomery, and Troy State University, all there. Amazing. That gave rise to Another case, Knight versus the state of Alabama, because now you have all these <laughs> state institutions and they're really discriminating against blacks. So then we had to file and we became involved in that, representing at that time Alabama State University because it wasn't getting as much resources as Auburn and uh, uh, from uh, University of Auburn as well as uh, Troy State. So it gave rise to that. What other city do you know of in the country that has three state-supported universities in it? I don't know of it, hmm. but there may be. All right. While we're talking about clients, this is MLK Weekend. And uh, one of the cases where you represented Martin Luther King, 
And you're the good looking one there, right? <laughs> I'm the younger of the two. You're the younger of the two. He was two old, two years older? That's right. All right. Um, one of the cases where you represented him and won was his tax case. And you won that to an all-white jury. Tell us about that case. Well, I, uh, I was one of a team that was put together in order to uh, win that case. After Dr. King, after the bus boycott was over, uh, Dr. King decided to go back to Atlanta because the organization for which he had been able to help to get the bus boycott was all over. And all of the existing black organizations had their own leaders. So he started an organization of his own, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, because now the picture that he showed you earlier where we were all smiling that was in March of 1956, and we lost that case. That was the case that Martin was one of 89 persons who was charged with violating the anti-boycott statute. But he wasn't known before then, but after that four-day trial, he was an international known figure, so he started that organization. Now, where were we? You were going to tell us about winning his tax case. His tax case. Yeah, so four years later, and this is in 1960, they decided, and I don't know why Alabama decided then to go back and file a, get an indictment against Dr. King saying he didn't pay his taxes back in 1958, but they did, and didn't notify him or notify me so he could give himself up. They sent the sheriff over there to serve this out-of-state warrant on him. And there was a committee that was formed to get a defense team, and I was the local lawyer who had to do all the local work, along with several other lawyers, uh, one lawyer from Chicago who was an expert on taxes, and another lawyer who was an expert, and then there was Judge Delaney out of New York. And that was Fred Gray. There was about five or six of us in that case. And there were the experts in taxes. And my responsibility was to coordinate all of it. And I was the only person that was on the scene. So when these lawyers come in, they come in, make their presentation and go on back. And then I have to be there and deal with that same judge. <laughs> <laughs> on just bread and butter work, which was not easy. But we didn't really expect it because it was the same time that John Lewis, who later became a congressman, was leading these freedom rides who had started in New York and had come all the way down to Atlanta, then into Birmingham. And in the middle of all of that, 
this all white jury found Dr. King not guilty. Mm. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. You you said when you first met Dr. King because you were both, you were coming back to Montgomery, he was coming to be the pastor of Dexter Avenue. This is during the Montgomery bus boycott. And you the decision's been made, we're going to boycott uh, the bus rides, and and the church has played an incredible role in that movement. And you write in your book about the first uh, meeting that the churches had. It was almost like a pep rally of sorts that this is what we're going to do. And it was the first time you heard Martin Luther King Jr. speak. You said it was like an Acts 2 environment. It was. Talk about that. Because uh, I didn't know Dr. King. I wasn't a member of this church, but didn't know him. And the only people who really knew him were just the people around his church because he hadn't gotten involved in anything at all. But when I listened to him and when I observed the audience, how they were listening to him as far as a person who had the ability to move people with words I agree with what Joanne Robinson had told me in her living room a few days earlier, and that is he could move people. And he was able to move people, whether they were with him or whether they were against him. He had a tremendous ability, but he was also a very human-type person. And he believed in nonviolence. And in one of our meetings, and we were taking place to show you the kind of person he was, uh, I had a brother who was in school at Alabama State and later was also a member of the board of the directors of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And we were in a meeting, and Dr. King was talking about nonviolence. And my brother Tom said to him, uh, Dr. King, uh, that's a nice ploy you have about nonviolence. He says, Brother Gray is not a ploy. Nonviolence is the only way we can win. We can't win without it. Mm. My brother was not convinced, but he went along with it. Then we had another occasion to show you the human aspect of him. If you were to come into a room where Dr. King was there and you're just sitting down talking and people talking, he would never monopolize a conversation. He would listen. He was a good listener. And he also had a sense of humor. He even told jokes in that meeting that he wasn't able to tell in the pulpit. <laughs> Very human. You know, what's amazing is when all this is going on, he, you, Mr. Gray, are 24, 25 years old, and Martin Luther King Jr. is just two years older. These are young men that are leading this movement, and it, it, you were with him when his home was bombed. Talk about going to his home after that moment, because y'all were in a meeting together, and you get word. Talk, talk about that. Well, actually, uh, this was a very tense uh, area. Montgomery had not had too, too much violence like they had in Birmingham. The 
one major event was when the Freedom Riders arrived with John Lewis and they were beaten a little bit at the bus station there and that was and the judge was right next to the federal building. So we weren't really accustomed to too much violence and didn't expect too much because we weren't doing anything that should have participated. But when Dr. King was at a meeting and got word that his house had been burned, bombed, and this was in February of 1956, two months after the boycott, then Dr. King and all of the leaders who were at this meeting, it was a meeting at Abernathy's church, went to the church, and by the time they got there, of course, the police were there, and you had a whole mass of black folks who had assembled. And, of course, what Dr. King was primarily concerned about was his wife, and they had one child at that time. And when he went in and found out that they were all right and the other black leaders were with him in there, and he, we all realized that this is a very serious matter. And Dr. King immediately went out on the porch and addressed the audience and told them that his wife was fine and their daughter was fine. And uh, we understand and you appreciate the concern that everybody had for their well-being, and we're just glad that the Lord took care of them. And even there wasn't too, too much damage done to the house. But he told them that he still believed, notwithstanding what had happened to his family in nonviolence, and that we can't win, we're going to win the battle that we're working on, but we're not going to do it in a violent matter. You've conducted yourselves well since December 5th. Don't let this change it. We won't. And I'm asking all of you to go back to your homes and take care of your business and let us continue to stay off of the buses until we can return on a non-segregated basis. Mm. And that group dispersed. However, what it did do, when they didn't permit me to file the case uh, with Claudette Carvin back in February uh, or March of 55, and had not up to this point authorized me, even though I had a complaint ready to file as a result of Mrs. Park's case, when that happened, the community said, we're a lawyer, and the leadership says, it's time for us to file the lawsuit. And then I filed Browder versus Gill in the next few weeks. You, as a, as a lawyer, experienced, even in the courtroom, different treatments between blacks and whites. You had a client one time who was black. And in court, I've always been told, and judges 
some judges get very upset if I don't call a, a witness or a person Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so. You don't use their first names generally. You call them Mr. Tell the audience about the judge who got frustrated with you because you called your client Mr. So-and-so. Well, actually, this was early on. This was the third week in December of 1955. The bus boycott had started. I received a call from the NACP in, in Selma, where later on you had the Selma movement to start. But this was back in 55. And of course, that was in 65. That occurred some 10 years later. Uh, and what had happened was there was an airman at Craig Air Force Base, which was in Selma at the time. Uh, had, was, he lived in the city. It was a sergeant going from Craig home, stopped at a traffic light, a white couple, uh, in front of him, and the, fight, the light changed, and the white couple didn't move very fast, but uh, the black guy tooted his horn, and they had a few words, and then both of them, uh, I forgot enough whether they got out of the cars or not, but anyway, they went on about their business, and uh the, the police, apparently the white gentleman went and filed a complaint against my client and they came and arrested him. They were trying his case, charged him with disorderly conduct. And I'd gone in and I had some other people who had gone over with me. And I was sitting in the courtroom and I was referring to my client as, uh, Mr. Smith or whatever his name was. And, uh, the jury said, you don't call them that in this courtroom. I didn't realize what the judge was talking about. Then it dawned on me, I called him Mr. and the judge was objecting to the fact that, uh, you called the black man. I called the black man, mister. He said, you don't call it that. Then it dawned on me. I said, well, your honor, he's a sergeant in the United States uh, Air Force. May I call him Sergeant Smith? He says, that's fine. So I called him that. <laughs> but that wasn't really the end of that. That was another little part of that story, too. I looked around to find, to look for the a uh, young man who had come with me and had driven me from Montgomery to Selma, and I didn't see him where he was in the courtroom. He was gone. Then when the case was over, they found him not guilty, and I'm going out to find, I was the only black man that I could find to get to, to uh, go his appeal bond. One of the officers, who all white at that time, great big guy said, if you're looking for that end that brought you here, he's in jail. I said, you're in jail? For what? He said, drinking liquor in the courtroom. I said, well, may I see him? They took me back. I went, talked with him, asked him what had happened. He told me, well, he was sitting there in the courtroom where I'd seen him. 
and then a black guy with uh, white uniforms on, who was an inmate, we later found, came and sat by him, stayed there for a couple of minutes, and got up and left. A few minutes later, a deputy came, touched him on the shoulder, and said, come and go with me and bring that bottle under your seat. Sure enough, there was a bottle of liquor under his seat that that inmate had brought (laughs) and put. They took him back there and lectured to him and told him that you all got a mess going on in Montgomery now. I'm talking about the Montgomery bus boycott. Said, when you go across that bridge, you tell that in lawyer, don't ever come back to Selma. And when I left, a few minutes later, they released him, and he came on and told me what had taken place. I went across that bridge, and I didn't go back to Selma for quite a little while. (laughs) Um, We are out of time, and the March to Selma story, uh, I got you to tell some of last night. If you didn't see it, I hope you'll get on the website. I, I, I agree with Pastor Jared. I hope you'll buy the book. We sold out of the book like that last night. I just didn't get enough of them. And we'll try to get a bunch more copies uh, for this class. Uh, uh, Becky and I would like to see everybody in this class who wants one to have a copy of the book. So we'll, we'll figure out how to get that done. Uh, that doesn't help you get Fred to sign it. But uh, I've studied his signature pretty carefully and I do okay with it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, would you join me in thanking him for being here? Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. God bless you. Um, Thank you. Pastor Jarrett's got a sermon on love that follows the interview, and I think Pastor Jarrett's going to be asking a few different questions in the next service. I tried to steer clear of those. Um, uh, i got to tell you, uh, uh, this has been a wonderful day, and I wish you had time to spend. They would take three hours, because everybody would love a picture with you. Um, uh, I'm going to get one where Becky's kissing me on the cheek like that. You're right behind us. I'll stand uh, by. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, thank you so much. Uh, can I bless us in the name of Jesus and we'll separate out. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings. Uh, I ask your continued blessings on Fred, Gray, Senior, Junior, all of the clan, everybody that works together with him. Uh, I ask you continue to bless their work. Thank you for what he does. May it serve as an inspiration to all of us to look to you for guidance in this world, to do your goodness everywhere we have an opportunity. Empower us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.